Good morning. It's good to be here, living 1 Corinthians 2-3. It was tempting to just play a recording of a prominent Bible teacher who would do a much more professional job, but I kept reminding myself of the one main difference between them and me. None of them will give an account to God on Judgment Day for your souls. So with the perfect source material, that is Scripture, you'll get my amateur version. But to echo what Beulah said on the video, all for the glory of God. Our scripture reading is from Galatians 1, starting in verse 6. Galatians 1, 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you to open our ears and hearts to hear it and love it and live it. Amen. So why, re why review the gospel? The true eternal gospel is good news for sinners like us. It's a proclamation that unrighteous, hell-bound sinners who deserve wrath from the thrice-holy God can be reconciled and completely forgiven. What can be better news than that? But from this passage in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, we can see that there were false so-called gospels being taught 2,000 years ago. He makes it clear the true gospel isn't a minor fine point of doctrine that we can all agree to disagree about. If we get the foundations wrong, we may find ourselves or our hearers accursed. We are currently living in a time in Western culture where governments and society don't fear God, and it's becoming more and more costly to live lives consistent with biblical teaching. If we're going to face ridicule or even physical persecution when claiming to be Christians, it seems imperative to understand what and why we believe. Only settled conviction will allow a person to stand in the face of opposition. It's appropriate to ask and answer what is worth dying for. It would be a tragedy to be martyred, then condemned for proclaiming a bad news gospel. To the world, belief in Jesus is a fine and noble thing as long as it doesn't interfere with its pursuit of pleasure. It's obvious to me now, when I was growing up, there weren't many true Christians, but society shared a common morality based on Christian principles. It was a blessing of God's common grace. But the veneer is coming off, and we are now seeing what was underneath all along. In some ways, it's helpful. As John MacArthur looked back at the year 2020, he said, I look at evangelicalism, and I see this clarity that's coming in culture. I love the fact that there's going to be the true church and the people who hate the truth. There's going to be the truth and lies. There's going to be church and anti-church. There's Christ and antichrist. I love the, that clarity. These are the best of times. Incredibly wonderful to have that kind of clarity where there's no reason to be a compromiser because the price is too high. I commend his entire sermon to you as an, encounter, as an encouraging reminder of the hope Christians have in the midst of the uncertainty of the world. Even if a real-life real Bond villain gains the whole world and we're left only with Jesus, he is enough. We're all confronted with things I've never had to consider. I used to think certain things should be obvious to everyone, what a man or a woman is, marriages between one man and one woman, the necessity of free speech, religious freedom, and private property. 
Our world is jettisoning it all, and it's disorienting, but why? Do you see what each of these, those things have in common? I didn't for a long time, but now I do. They're all things God has created, defined, and or described in the Bible. Listen to this verse. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 We have been so blessed by God to be immersed in a country founded on biblical principles, we've never questioned the definition of these things. God has spoken, but our fallen nature wants to reject it all. I'm not a prophet, but it seems to me God is withdrawing his hand of restraint. That that's his prerogative because grace cannot be expected or demanded. Maybe he'll walk things back. Maybe he won't. In the meantime, we're beginning to see in the United States what most of the rest of the world has experienced for centuries and even millennia. The world claims to love Jesus because he's so kind and inclusive and non-judgmental. What's not to love? But the world does not know the Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. These are hard, exclusive, judgmental words. Would the, Jesus each of you claim to believe in them? Believe? Would the, church, would the Jesus each of you claim to believe in say them? The world and even many self-professed Christians say things like, yeah, those are words from the Bible, but it was written by men and has all sorts of contradictions. My Jesus wouldn't say those things. Somebody probably added them later. That brings up a good question. When we have a dispute about doctrine, what is our standard? I'm not going to give a defense of the Bible this morning, but I am willing to point to helpful resources if you come and ask me. But to illustrate the seriousness of the issue, I'll read a condensed version of something said by R.C. Sproul. What actually functions as the authority in your life? And I'd like to add to this a plea, a twofold plea. One, that if it is that if it is not the scriptures, my first plea with you is that you make that your final authority. And here's the second plea. If you don't make scripture your final authority, then I would plead with you with all of the emotion that I could muster to get out of any position of leadership in the Christian community because you're an absolute menace to the kingdom of God. Unquote. In short, the Bible is true inerrant, and the infallible foundation of this church. As confusing as it may be, I am convinced those of us who believe this are a small minority, even in Christendom. We must stand firm anyway. Which leads me to say, don't take my word for any of what I'm saying today. You must read the Bible for yourself. God will hold me responsible for my teaching and you for your own beliefs. I think it was John Piper who I heard say something to the effect, a person who God saves will spend the rest of his life trying to figure out what happened. I can relate. Whether I was taught it or just never heard otherwise, I grew up thinking the way to please God was by not doing certain things and by being a nice person. So that's essentially what I did. I went to school, got married, got a job, went to church, 
never stole anything big, killed anyone, or told anything but white lies. In my mind, I was doing just fine. But God began convicting me of my sin in the mid-90s, around 2001. After a time of depression, by God's enabling grace, I found myself trusting in Jesus for the first time. Just celebrated my 20th or so anniversary last year. Everything changed. In spite of my ongoing sin, I knew I was forgiven. But how could a guilty sinner like me be forgiven? We're going to take the scenic road to get to the ultimate answer, but I'll give you a hint. Our God, triune God is the hero in the story. Let's look at a couple gospel presentations found in Scripture. One of the shortest is directly from Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. He said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Another is the ministry of Paul and Silas during their ministry in the city of Philippi. Paul, Silas, and Luke were traveling and preaching throughout the cities in Asia in what is now modern-day Turkey, which I just learned they're going to change the spelling of their name. This, this account is recorded in Acts 16. I'm going to just give a summary so you don't have to turn there. But Paul and Silas had been arrested, beaten, and thrown in the inner prison with their feet, fa feet fastened in stocks for casting, out a demon, for casting a demon out of a slave girl. But instead of despairing, they were singing and praying to God. After God caused an earthquake that opened the prison and released their stocks, they remained in the prison. The jailer was so frightened and surprised that they hadn't fled that he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So if we combine our two texts, all we have to do is repent and believe in Jesus. I guess we can go home. But what does repent and believe mean? What or whom did the jailer need to be saved from? We're going to explore things like these this morning and work to give foundational answers. I hope this overview will lead to other questions and inspire a lifelong desire to pursue a knowledge of God's grace. We need to start from the beginning to set the stage in order to understand how the world has gotten in the mess it's in. I have to warn you that things are going to get pretty dark. My intention is to first bury us in condemnation and guilt. If you've read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, you might say I'm calling on Moses to give us a beating before Evangelist shows us the way to the Sheep Gate and the Celestial City. I really recommend that book. My prayer is for the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment in order to show us the need for a Savior. We learn in Genesis 1 and 2, after God created our world in six normal days, he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Adam, a man, and Eve, a woman, our first ancestors, lived in the Garden of Eden and were naked and unashamed because they fully trusted God. Work was pleasant, farming was without weeds, and childbirth would have been painless. But God gave them one command found in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you shall eat, in the day that you shall eat it, you shall surely die. 
to make a long story short, Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam blindly followed, and they ate of the fruit. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This was our original sin. For the purposes we'll use, for our purposes today, we'll use the definition of sin we teach the kids in Good News Club. Sin is anything we say, think, or do that does not please God. The Apostle Paul summarizes the fall of humanity in Romans 5. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. God assigned Adam as the official representative of all his offspring. Theologians refer to this as federal headship. A federal head represents those to whom he has been given authority over. We see this even today in our form of government. We elect officials to represent us. We have granted them authority to make decisions on our behalf, whether in city, county, state, or federal levels. God charged Adam to represent the human race. This means when he sinned by eating the fruit God had forbidden, all of his future descendants, including us, were credited with his sin. This sin is sufficient to condemn every one of us. Paul puts it this way, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The EFCA Statement of Faith, Article 3, puts it this way, in union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. In other words, we sin because we are sinners. I have to introduce a theological term here. The word is imputation. One Bible dictionary defines imputation as setting to someone's account or reckoning something to another person. While it may not seem fair to be judged guilty for someone else's sin, the implications of rejecting the doctrine of imputation has eternal consequence. If you refuse to be represented by another person in your sin, that is Adam, then to be consistent, you must also reject Jesus as your representative. God will require your own blood to pay for your sin if you reject the sacrificial death of Jesus on your behalf. More on this later. Committing only one sin is sufficient for condemnation. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. If you'd like a visual representation of trying to nibble at God's law with breaking all of it, I suggest you look up a video of a Prince Rupert drop on the Smarter Everyday YouTube channel. It's catastrophic. But we're not guilty of breaking only one of God's laws. Here's where we're going to be put to death. We will, we will all find ourselves in the following verses. From Timothy, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and, in, and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. But sexual immorality 
and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who has who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. From Galatians, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, distensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Revelation 21, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do, do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And Jesus himself lowered the bar of condemnation to mere desires. Lust, God regards lust as adultery and hatred as murder. Isn't that brutal? Anyone here still feeling pretty good about themselves? Are you feeling defensive? If after hearing this, any of you can claim to be a pretty good person... I would in all seriousness ask you to examine yourself and see if you actually believe in Jesus. We all have the innate desire to deflect our guilt. Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed God for the woman he gave him. We want to blame our circumstances. I remember years ago, this is kind of funny, but it's an illustration of, a, of our depravity, even as a, at a young age. I remember years ago when one of our kids was little, I think I asked if he had ever told a lie the response was an immediately, so have you, but we aren't judged by other people's sins. The trouble is our own hearts. To get around this, our culture today is simply trying to redefine certain sins as good and silencing anyone who contradicts. Fornication is love. Promiscuity is serial monogamy. Abortion is a simple choice. Homosexuality is a gay lifestyle. Pornography is something that doesn't hurt anybody. Lying in politics is fine because everyone else does it. Gossip is just what's done on social media. Whenever I hear of Pride Month, I can't help but complete the proverb. Pride be goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I once heard Bodhi Balcom say, if God doesn't judge the United States, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. The whole world is on the same trajectory. 
here, men, I'm primarily but not exclusively talking to you when I say if you are actively seeking pornography and not warring against your lusts, by authority of Jesus himself, I cannot give you any assurance of salvation. Women, you must also war against your besetting sins. I'm not highlighting these sins because they're the only ones that matter. I'm only emphasizing them because the world is coercing us to deny God's word and approve of such depravity. Remember, these sins are not unforgivable. As Pastor Clint quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones a number of weeks ago, there is hope for anyone. As I recall, R.C. Sproul is the first person who caused me to consider the question, what do you need to be saved from? So I'll include his answer. You need to be saved from God, not from kidney stones, not from hurricanes, not from military defeats. The thing that every human being needs to be saved from is God. The last thing in the world the unrepentant sinner ever wants to meet on the other side of the grave is God. But the glory of the gospel is that the one from, from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. God saves us from himself. But woe unto those who have no savior on the day of wrath. The Bible says that on that day, the unbeliever will scream to the mountains to fall upon him, to the hills to hide him. He will be looking for refuge from nature itself, saying, cover me, give me a shield. But there is only one shield that can protect against protect anyone from the wrath that is to come, and it is the covering of the righteousness of Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus, God clothes us with the garments of Jesus, and the garments of his righteousness are never the target of the wrath of God. The one who trusts in Jesus has peace with God, and there is no condemnation left. Did you know that God has a dilemma, or at least it's a dilemma for us? One dictionary defines a dilemma as a situation in which a difficult choice has to be made between two or more alternatives. This choice is found in Exodus chapter 34. You can go ahead and turn there. I'd like us all to, to follow along if you have a Bible. Exodus 34. We'll start in verse 6. We find Moses sheltered in the cleft of a rock after he asked God to show him his glory. As I read, notice the two groups of people described. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you see the dilemma created in verse 7? God is willing to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but he will not clear the guilty. Paul Washer put it this way, the most terrifying truth in Scripture is that God is good. Why is this terrifying? Because we are not. Galatians 3.10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. I spent the time reading all of those condemnation verses. Those are called the vice lists, sometimes referred to as the vice lists in Scripture to prove that we are not innocent, that we are guilty. So to illustrate this, this dilemma, the difficulty for God to clear the guilty, imagine a court scene. The prosecutor has just finished presenting the case against the defendant who is charged on multiple counts of especially wicked capital crimes. The case was airtight, bloody, bloody fingerprints on weapons, DNA matches, multiple eyewitnesses, high-resolution surveillance footage. 
the defendant's own voluntary, cold-blooded, unapologetic, videotaped confession. The defense attorney couldn't present evidence to instill any doubt. Nothing was out of place. No extenuating circumstances, no controversy. It would have made a lousy episode of Perry Mason or your favorite CSI show if you're a kid out here. After the jury, after the jury deliberated for about five minutes, the defendant was found guilty on all counts. The verdict was given to the judge for sentencing. The family members of the victims were anxious as the judge asked the defendant to stand and said, you have been found guilty by a jury of your peers. The evidence has been conclusive and you have shown no signs of remorse. But since I am a good and loving judge, I'm letting you go. Court adjourned. Was justice served? No, it wasn't. He should have been locked up or executed. The judge should be disbarred. We know instinctively the judge wasn't good or loving. Ask yourself, what if God was like this wicked judge and simply overlooked sin? Would he be worthy of our devotion and worship? Not on your life. That's the dilemma. But we are the defendants, found guilty of innumerable counts of sinning against the only holy God. His eyes are so pure he cannot see evil or look at wrong. And in Psalm 5, we're told... The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. We are evildoers. It causes me to question the ubiquitous contemporary mantra of God loves you just the way you are. That would only be true if you're already perfect. It's pretty bleak. The law can only condemn. We have failed miserably to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Hellfire and brimstone preaching has its place, which that's what I've been doing on purpose. But it can only take, but it, can, but it can't take us anywhere but down. I know I'm ready to hear the remedy for sin, but first I feel compelled to offer one common wrong way to respond to sin. It is remarkably easy to slip into moralistic legalism and works righteousness. I dare say every parent... Sunday school teacher, good news club teacher, or homeschool teacher here today is guilty of falling into this trap. I know I have. Here's the situation. When a child acts up in class or home or anywhere, and they disobey us, our typical response is something like, God doesn't like it when you disobey your parents or leaders. The Bible says children obey your parents and leaders, so you need to start acting better. Now, what was said is absolutely true, and maybe we even somehow said it in a calm and collected way, but whether we realize it or not, this is pure law. We are essentially telling them, behave right and God will be satisfied. This is no different than what the Pharisees were telling their people. We so easily forget the gospel. In our hypothetical scenario, it is appropriate to correct the sinful behavior but unless we eventually point them to Jesus for forgiveness, it is likely the kid we're correcting will end up either a self-righteous legalist who thinks he's good enough on his own efforts to please God or someone who knows he can never measure up and continue spiraling down into a life of despair. Maybe like me, you'd end up both. This applies equally when we tell an unbeliever to stop sinning. Ironically, moral reform for an unbeliever may result in a more pleasant life, but it only results in changing the sin. 
it cannot remove God's displeasure because without faith in Jesus, it is impossible to please God. We know our own salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus and not by the works of the law. But somehow we forget the Jesus part. Let's begin looking at the right way. Two of the most hope-filled words to guilty sinners is found in Ephesians 2.4. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones devoted an entire sermon to the two of them. The two words are, but God. Let's read them in context. You can turn to Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. We got to go through some more law first. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And here's our two words of hope. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We are guilty and on our way to hell, but God is rich in mercy. But how do we access his mercy? Is it by flogging ourselves, secluding ourselves to escape the world, taking the Lord's Supper, being baptized, giving away all our money, helping at a soup kitchen, or praying to saints? I was reminded of this when we were singing the, the song. It's not about what we do. No, on all accounts, God owns everything, needs nothing, and cannot be bribed with our works. The wages of sin is death, and we are and we've seen it would be unjust for God to simply overlook our sin. Without a satisfactory payment, God must condemn us to hell for all eternity where our worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Left to ourselves, God will require our own blood. But God has made satisfactory payment. Under the old covenant, God used animal sacrifices to cover the guilt cover the sin of those who offered them in faith, but they were insufficient to remove the guilt of our sin. Today we look to the cross of Jesus. Anyone who calls out to God in repentant faith, trusting in the vicarious death of Jesus, will find him to be a perfect savior. He can righteously forgive our sins without compromising his justice. We can legally be allowed to go free because Jesus voluntarily shed his blood as a payment for sin. In short, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here we again see the necessity of federal headship and imputation. Just as Adam represents his descendants through natural birth, Jesus acts as the mediator between God and those who are born again through spiritual rebirth. His life is their life. His death is their death. His resurrection is their resurrection. A great example is Abraham. After God promised to give him and Sarah a child, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't earn it through his works and he continued to, to disobey, but God regarded him as innocent. It was imputed, that is credited to him. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament illustrates double imputation. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was credited, that is, imputed to Jesus. And the righteousness of Jesus is reckoned, that is, imputed to those who trust in him. It's a great deal for us, but it cost Jesus his life. Every time I read this verse, I can't help but think, if this wasn't in the Bible, it would be blasphemy. Who in their right mind would ever think to claim they were as righteous as God? Last week, Jamie Hale said Ukrainian Christians are known as repenters. Biblically speaking, this is appropriate since Jesus and the apostles told people to repent. But there's much confusion about the meaning. I've wrestled with it myself. The Greek word translated as repentance literally means to change one's mind. It involves a person agreeing with God's assessment that he or she is guilty and deserves God's wrath. But is that all? Many times I hear a person say repentance unto salvation is turning from all sin and trusting in Jesus. But this doesn't seem accurate to me. My primary cause for doubting this definition is illustrated by the following question. And you can each answer it for yourself. I know the answer, by the way, <laughs> even if you give the wrong one. How many of you here who have surrendered to Jesus and know you are forgiven have stopped sinning? That's what I thought, because if that's the case, then none of us is saved. But I think we have a clue in Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Foundationally, repentance unto salvation must be a confession of sin and a turning from self-righteousness to trusting in Jesus for his righteousness. We must abandon any claim to a righteousness of our own and rely fully on Jesus. He paid it all. Salvation cannot depend on our performance, otherwise it wouldn't be based on grace. However, even though cessation of sin is not required before turning to Jesus, the progressive sanctification in the ongoing transformation of a person's life must be the inevitable result. In the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus, there must be fruit of repentance of some kind. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. We should expect life transformation from someone who claims to believe in Jesus. Our Stanton E. Free t-shirts quote at least part of, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let's look again at 1 Corinthians 6. In verses 9 through 10, we read the list of sins leading to condemnation. And I won't reread them. But in verse 11, we find, And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The verbs are in past tense. This is the language of transformation of life. Many today claim a faithful Christian can continue to practice at least some of the sins listed in the passage and the other passages that we've read. They would say sexual orientation isn't included in the sexual sins mentioned. But to hold this view, they are essentially changing Scripture to read, and such are some of you. The truth is, there had been men and women in Corinth who practiced any number of sins, but God gave them new hearts. Their lives were no longer characterized by them. They were putting off the old self and putting on the righteousness of Jesus. They were producing fruit of repentance. All Christians are called to do the same even today. 
I want to offer to any Christian here who is struggling to forget their sin. First of all, I commend you for feeling remorse. God never takes sin lightly, and neither should we. It is good and appropriate to remember our past sins, but only to remind ourselves of where we came from. But thanks be to God, we don't live there anymore. If you're trusting in Jesus alone, he really paid it all. To tell us, die, it is finished. Your sins were nailed to the cross and removed as far as the east is from the west. You have been brought, bought with a price more valuable than all of the universe. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. You are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Internalize God's word in Romans 7. Give thanks to God for his inexpressible gift. The triune God is on your side. I don't know who to attribute this following saying to, but I find it helpful as a mnemonic to remember. The Father authored your salvation. Jesus accomplished it, and his Holy Spirit applied it to you. With as much compassion as I can offer, don't doubt the power of the gospel to save to the uttermost. I got a question because our time is kind of gone already. But the men who are at the at the Man of God training, are you willing to sit through Alistair Begg's video? David is saying yes. I think it's worthwhile. I won't be offended if that's all you remember today. <laughs> Trust Jesus like the repentant thief on the cross. Cry out to him like the tax collector who said, be merciful to me, the sinner. Don't rely on meritorious good works or traditions or religious rituals. They are worthless, filthy rags in God's sight. Turn from self-righteousness and dead works and trust in the one who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and raised himself from the dead to prove God had accepted his sacrifice. Reach out with an empty hand of faith. By God's spirit, trust him with your life and eternity. Be the blessed man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Today is the day of salvation. Our lives are but a vapor and eternity awaits. To God be all the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your wisdom, you made a way to forgive sinners without compromising your holiness. I ask for your spirit to strengthen the faith of your children here today. Encourage and continue to remind us of the power of the gospel. Help us to let go of the burden of our forgiven sin and rest assured that Jesus paid the full debt of our sins. But for those here who have not truly trusted in your son, I ask you not to give them peace until they come to you in repentance and faith in Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.